Well, as you're grabbing your seat, let's continue our time of worship by grabbing your Bible and turning to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be having some folks coming around here with Bibles for you to borrow. Uh, I just want to tell you, you got to have a Bible on your lap today. You just got to. You should every Sunday, but you really got to today. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is literally one of two of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. I could easily spend personally a month on this. Um, but uh, we're going to get a 20,000 foot view of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, you turn in there? Getting there? All right. Hey, one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is the fact that the Apostle Paul, as a teacher of the gospel of Christ, he is just so concerned that people don't deceive themselves. He's just so concerned as a teacher of the gospel that, that his hearers, that the people that he's been involved with, uh, just don't deceive themselves in thinking that they are at a place with the Lord, that they are at a place with Christ where they really aren't. I so appreciate that. He's not trying just to get a whole bunch of people to come around so he can buy a bigger home. He's just not trying to be all braggy about who he is. He's actually really trying to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and have people get it. And every so often he comes along and he kind of takes some time and he just says, hey, let's evaluate. That's one of these chapters. Well, let's just go ahead and jump right in, get started. Philippians chapter 3, I want to start in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, To write the same things to you again is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, I want to make sure we understand here, especially when it starts out finally, that this word here for finally is not drawing the letter to a conclusion. Paul is not going, hey, I've been talking about all these things. Now, here's the last thing, and I'm going to uh, be wrapping it up here. Actually, it's talking about more this idea of I have something remaining. It's, it's more like this. Uh, I've said some very important things along the way here in this letter, and I have a few other things remaining yet to say before I conclude. That's what, what's really happening here. And the things, as we see in verse 1, that he's about to say are things that he's actually said before. He's told them before about what he's going to tell them here. Now, you and I are this way. There are times in life where we, in essence, we say, hey, have you heard me say this before? And it's like, yeah, well, I'm saying it again because it's really that important. It's a big deal. And that's what's happening here. He has some really important things to say. He's said them before because they're important. So he's going to say them again. So he has no problem saying again what is so important for him. And notice at the end of verse 1, it's for your safety. It's a safeguarding. Uh, The word here has this idea of uh, I've been talking about some things and now I want to talk about something so you don't get tripped up in doing what I've just been talking about. Don't get overthrown. Uh, in light of what I've just talking about, don't get overthrown to go there. What we've been talking about comes out of chapter 1, verse 27. Only worthily of the gospel you must all be living. That's the bold statement. That's the headliner. And now he's coming in. He's saying, hey, listen, as we've been talking for the last four weeks, only worthily of the gospel you must all be living. If you're going to continue to live that way, there's some things to safeguard to make sure they don't trip you up in being and in doing that. That's what Paul's doing there in verse 1. It's a transition. Uh, by the way, do you notice in there he says, uh, and rejoice in the Lord? Paul just always gets that in. 
Um, don't have time to spend on it, but I will say this. It's a present active imperative. It means that it's a verb that's saying, listen, this is something you and I, we should be doing all the time, presently and actively. And it's imperative. It's a directive. It's a command. In other words, he's saying, hey, brothers in Christ in Philippi, you must be continuously all the time rejoicing in Christ. All the time you must be. Well, with that kind of set in mind, let's jump into verses two and three. Let me read verses two and three. Uh, By the way, remember, it's for safeguarding, okay? So important here. This is safeguarding because look at the first words. He jumps right into the safeguarding. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Uh, these first two verses, or, or these second, the second and third verse, are so important in what we're about to do. These kind of set the tone for what's happening. Basically, he's boiling it all down and he's saying this Don't be this, be this. Uh, in essence, don't be verse two, be verse three. Look out for verse two people so that you can be a verse three person. So look out, verse two, look out for false gospel people. Look out. Look out. Uh, it means just what it says. Watch out. Uh, keep your eyes peeled. And by the way, it's a present active continuous imperative. You must be looking out continuously all the time. It's just part of our grid work. Our framework is what believers in Christ is that we're always to be looking out for certain kinds of people. Now look at the kinds of people he has here. I'm calling them dog people, evil working people, mutilating people. Okay, now, um, I just want to say something before I get into explaining this, because I realize by saying that, I have the chance of losing a few of you right here. And it's because of this. It's very possible some are going, goodness gracious, that's awful harsh. Come on, dude, where's the love? Uh, Let me just address that for a moment. Here's the reality. We live in a postmodern politically correct world. That's just the culture that we live in. And that postmodern politically correct world means that we end up dancing around truth. And we dance around truth because postmodernism says you cannot define absolute truth. What's your truth is good for you and what's your truth is good for you. And God accepts all truth. If that's the case, I'm telling you, friends, God is a complete schizophrenic. And so we live in a world where you come down and you go, this is the line, this is the truth. It just kind of goes against our cultural nature. So hang on with it because the fact is, is there is absolute truth. And if there isn't, we're really in big trouble. Secondly, I want to say this. I'm not the one saying this. Okay, my job is to communicate what the Bible says, right? So I'm communicating what the Bible says. So don't stone me. Also, you've got to understand who Paul is referring to. Paul is referring to people, well-intentioned people, who are proclaiming a set of truth that they are saying are, is God's truth set, but it's not. Well-intentioned doesn't matter. 
The reality is, is people here in this setting, what he's saying to be watching out for is there are people well-intentioned who actually believe what they're saying is the truth. But the fact of the matter, it's not God's truths. And when you communicate anything, if it's not truth, that is just outright mean. In fact, God has given us his truths so that we can draw near to him. You know, God has reached out to us. God is the one who has said, here, know about me. This is who I am. And when he puts this out, if, if, if what I, you, others proclaim is not God's truth, it doesn't draw us near to God. It actually draws us away from God. And frankly, from God's perspective, that's a wrong, evil thing. Because God desires that people draw near to him in his truth. That's why truth is so important. That's why also I'll just note here, do you get the sense that God really can't stand it when his truth is messed with? It's his truth. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. It's his truth. And that's why it's so important. That's why Paul is saying, look out. And so here's the three kinds of categories or terms he uses for the people who are uh, proclaiming truths that are not God's truths. Number one, uh, they're dogs. Uh, look out for the dogs. Now understand, we're not talking about pets. We're not talking about Snoopy, my, our, our cute little Snoopy that's getting old and falling apart. We're not talking about that. Uh, you got to understand, Paul is using terminology of his day that they got it. A dog in Paul's day was viewed as a scavenger that plagued upon cities. Dogs were scavengers. that They were like hyenas that plagued upon cities. They weren't the cute little fuzzy thing. You'd go down to the pet store and look and go, oh. Uh, The Gentiles hated dogs. The Jews saw dogs as unclean. So here's what Paul is saying. Listen, look out for false teachers that are unclean scavengers that plague upon people with, I'm just going to say it straight up, with damning truth is actually what it is. Look out for that. Look out for that presently, actively, continuously. Secondly, he says, look out for the evil workers. Same group of people, but he uses another term here. Uh, People that are teaching a gospel that's not the gospel. What were they teaching? Well, what they were teaching was that the Gentiles had to basically become Abrahamic covenant Jews. In other words, they had to go all the way back to the Old Testament time and do these ritualistic ceremonies and so forth in order to be able to do the ditty to be able to earn God's favor. Now understand this. They completely misunderstood God's ditty. All of those. How is a person in the Old Testament saved? By faith in the coming Messiah. How is a person saved today? By placing their faith in the Messiah that has come. It's always been by faith alone. Always. It's never been by works. And yet they were twisting it. And so what was happening is they were saying, listen, you've got to go do all this kind of stuff in order to be it. I just want to tell you, they're communicating untruth and they're communicating untruth about how to know God. Just outright, that's evil. Third, he calls them the mutilators. It's actually a category. Uh, Literally, it's the mutilators. There's a number of category things in here. I'm not spending the time in today, but I will even just make mention of this. The term the circumcision is a categorical term. It wasn't smack talk. 
In fact, people of the day who Paul is referring to actually called themselves, who are you? We're the circumcision. That was actually the title. What are you? What did you grow up? I grew up as a Presbyterian. I grew up as a Baptist. I grew up at whatever. That was a categorical term that Paul is in essence kind of using it and working off of here. Same thing with the mutilators tying off of that. What are these people doing? They are literally hacking up God's truth. They are hacking up God's hope and God's help. They're just hacking it up. I just want to note this. Here's some ways we commonly hack up God's truths today with some thoughts. Uh, Jesus Christ was not God. He was just a prophet. A hack. Uh, not they're a hack, but hacking truth. Uh, Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross. Actually, an uh, Islamic uh, thought. No, Jesus didn't die on the cross. That was someone else and we got it all wrong. Uh, The Bible's not trustworthy. That's another one. It's good stuff, but it's really not fully trustworthy. I just want to tell you, friends, if this is not trustworthy, then let's just pack it all up and go home. That's it. That's his bottom line. It's not that parts of it are trustworthy. It's either all trustworthy or none of it's trustworthy. Because if parts of it are trustworthy and parts of it are not, that's just really mean and cruel. How do we know? And that's just hacking up the reality. Here's another one. Learn to love yourself. I just got to tell you, I actually think I and we have that one mastered. You and I do not need to learn to love ourselves more. That's actually the problem. Okay. Here's another one. If you have enough faith, you will never get sick or experience life trials. It's having faith. Well, that's pretty interesting because Paul is writing this from jail. So he must not have very much faith, but he's writing God's word. Do you see the disconnect there? That's hacking up God's truth. Here's another one. Just to be a Christian, oh, here's what you need to do. You just need to do the religious dip. You need to do the religious ditty or the dance or the dress code thing. We're going to talk about that because Paul knew that life. That's not what it's about. Uh, Those things can represent things, but that's not what it's ultimately about. To be a Christian, you need to live moral. You just need to be kind. You need to be honest. You need to be generous. You need to serve. You need to have 51% more uh, so that the scales tip towards goodness than badness. Here's the deal. How do you handle Isaiah 64, 6? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Well, I've tried to do a lot of righteous deeds. Here's what the Bible says. Then you got a bigger pile of uh, filthy rags. I don't mean to be cruel about it, but that's what it's saying. Uh, Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no one will be justified in the sight of God. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works. So here Paul is saying, look out for false gospel people. Look out because they scavenge upon God's word. Uh, They work God's word. They mutilate the gospel. Look out for that. And by the way, P.S., we don't have time to talk about it, but let me just put it this way. This is why you and I need to be so careful that what we say and teach is God's truth and not your truth, not my truth, but God's truth. Okay? It's so important. Don't be that. Instead, be this. Be the real gospel people. Verse 3. Look in your text there. We read it. Three things, Paul says. How do I know if I'm a gospel, uh, a real gospel person? Well, here's what ends up happening. Worship by the Spirit of God. Real gospel people worship by the Spirit of God. You see, false teachers would say, we worship God through religious rituals and through religious works. A real gospel says, we worship Jesus, we worship God through the overflowing work of the Spirit of God in me. 
That's the only way we can worship God is through the overflowing work of the Spirit of God in a person's life. My salvation is only because of the work of the Spirit of God in me. Did I pray and receive Christ? Absolutely. But I want to tell you that was only a work of the Spirit of God in my life. Any kind of growth and maturing in Christ that you and I have, that is only the work of the Spirit of God in you. Do you see how we can't point fingers at, look at me, aren't I great? It's all about him. Worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, Paul says the next thing, a real gospel person is glory in Christ Jesus person. The false teachers were saying, embrace Jesus in a small font, like about a six-point font. But then what they were doing is in like a 60-point font, they were saying, glory in your Abrahamic Torah work. Yeah, Jesus, but it's really about this. Uh, Gospel people say, listen, I can only glory in the work of Christ alone because I bring nothing to the table on my own. It's all about the cross. It's all about grace. It's all about Jesus Christ. 30 says, real gospel people put no confidence in the flesh. False gospel people were teaching, put your confidence in your ritual works, in your religious works. Put your confidence there. The gospel of Christ says, put your confidence in Jesus Christ alone, no works. There is no religious dip, no religious ditty, no religious dance, no religious dress that secures you. Only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Paul is saying, followers of Christ, keep looking out. Be on your guard. Don't get tripped up with the thinking that a relationship with Jesus Christ is founded upon a set of things you do. You cannot earn God's favor. Don't play that game. Don't play that game. Paul goes on in essence he's saying here, don't play that game because I know that game. I know that game so well that I actually want to tell you how I played that game and what happened in my life. Verses 2 and 3 are pivotal to understanding what now comes. We now enter one of what I think is the most beautiful, transparent, let's be real, get behind the ministry curtain, get in the brain of somebody. What happened to the Apostle Paul? Why is he what he is today from what he was before? What happened? We're going there. You ready? Can you tell? I'm standing up. I love this part. Here we go. <laughs> who Paul was, now who Paul wants. Verse. Let's start verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision. We could actually say, for we are the real gospel who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Hey, you want to play the works game? You want to play the game of who God thinks is really good? Bring it on, baby. Let's play that game. Everybody, contestants, line up. Here we go. Contestant number one, the Apostle Paul. Here we go. Paul, tell us about you. How do you have confidence in the flesh? Well, verse five, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Okay. Briefly. Paul's saying this. From birth, before I even could make a choice, I was already on the right train track. I was an eighth dayer. Eight days after being born, I was circumcised, just like the Jewish regulations held. Uh, By birth, I didn't even make the choice, but by birth, I was a member of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And not only that, of the chosen people of Israel by birth, I came from the best lineage in Israel. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. Who is Benjamin? Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel. He was also the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. When the kingdom split into 12 tribes, the city of Jerusalem was in the Benjamin's territory. In other words, the temple where the Shekinah glory of God resided, that was in Benjamin's area. And Paul is like, here we go. Eighth day of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I already probably got most of you. And I say that because in the day that Paul was writing, it really had gotten with all the intermarriage of things. Most people, frankly, even Jews, most people, most Jews didn't even really know what tribe they were from because it was all intermixed at that time. And so he brings it up. Now, Paul wasn't just born right. He himself remained right. In other words, he was committed to the language. He was committed to the orthodoxy. He was committed to the traditions of his elite heritage. Paul did not live as a Hellenized Jew. He wasn't a Jew by name and then lived something else. He wasn't a Christian at church and then during the rest of the weeks or on Friday nights or Saturday nights with someone else. He was actually committed to the Jewish traditional rabbinic system of the Torah from birth all the way into adulthood. Now it says zeal. Zeal was viewed as the highest admired characteristic by the Jews. And he says, as for zeal, can't beat me. I didn't just tell people about the Jewish faith. I persecuted people if they didn't follow it. That's a zealous dude. On the zealometer, he was in a whole nother category. Oh, and if you want to bring the whole rightness thing, the righteousness thing, Paul's saying, I'm telling you, I followed the law to the every dot, cross T, everything. There was no chink in Paul's salvation by works armor. In fact, Paul was the poster boy of salvation by works. But guess what? No matter how impressive the list, God was not impressed. 
because we find out that there was no salvific value whatsoever in his works. Zero. That was Paul. But something happened. Paul, I'm calling it, did the math. Paul did the math. He strolled into his life vault. He opened the door, walked in, took a look at all the stuff that was in there. And guess what? He found that all this stuff he had been working for, for the, all of his life to that point, was utter valueless. Verse 7, but, there's a transition, I was this, but now this, but whatever gain I had, let's be straight up, there was gain. But whatever that, quote, gain was, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul comes to a place in his life where he does the honest math. And this word counted is really, really important. And it's so important because of this reason. It's called a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb. And when the Philippians were reading this, they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that what he was saying was this. He's not talking about a present uh, action. He's not talking about a future action. He's not just talking about some random action that happened in the past and is done, is over with. A perfect tense verb refers to an action that was done in the past that has ongoing implications of it. Very important. The cross is a perfect tense reality. It was done once. Christ died once on the cross, but out of it comes all kinds of ramifications. Paul purposely uses that word. He goes back and he says, listen, there was a time of cognitive analysis. Can you just see him there? You know, the vault door open like we've got here on the screen. And there he is with the calculator and the hat and the glass. I'm sure they had calculators, probably sun calculators then too. You know, and there he is and he's punching it up along and he totals it all up. And while he's just like, got this, he's so excited about this whole reality that's coming because he's thinking he's got this tycoon pile of Paul awesomeness that's about to be totaled and he can't wait to see the line of zeros and he comes to the end and he finds out there's a dot before all the zeros and it's valueless. Everything this guy has zealously been about for all of his life preceding this, he comes to this place and he says, I counted and I realized it was useless. This is one smart dude. And when he came to the realization that it's all a big, fat, zero egg, can you imagine that moment? Everything you have put your heart and soul, no matter how well-intentioned, is useless from an eternal reality. How do you respond to that? I'm going to toss out, I think there's two ways to respond to that. One of the things Paul could have done is he could have just denied the reality and gone on living in a self-lie because he knew it was valueless. And he just could have gone on living like, well, 
I tell you, it reminds me in college, University of Minnesota, Friday and Saturday nights in the dorm. And uh, everybody would get together and the big party. And the big party would be down the hall and, you know, just the music is cranking and everybody's in it's just jam-packed. Everybody's in there and you got to scream to talk and the music and everybody's just hammered. And it's like, yeah, this is so awesome. This is so cool. I remember going, I'm sorry, you guys, but this is so boring. And yet all of you are living a self-lie. Because here's the reality. I remember on Saturday at lunch, talking with guys throughout the year. Tell me about the party. Oh, it was awesome. Really, because I actually remember the scene of seeing you with your head in the toilet, puking up your guts, and I saw no sign of having a blast in your eyes. Oh, but it was awesome. I just want to tell you, self-lie. I went to him because I was trying to reach guys for Christ. You may have an issue with that, but I'm just telling you, I went to him and I was there and I was just like, this is so boring. It was interesting as the year went on, more and more guys started hanging out with us to do things because actually we had way more fun than they ever did because they're living in a self-lie. And Paul could have lived in that self-life. But here's the thing. The other thing you could do is you could look at that and go, oh my goodness, it's a zeroed out balance. I've got to change my life paradigm. I've got to utterly drive a stake and change direction on what I am all about. Listen, that takes guts. And that's what Paul did. Look at verse eight. Indeed, I count, you hear the math? I count everything as loss because of, you see, there was something that became a greater value because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word for rubbish can be dung. It can be manure. That's really what he was talking about. Uh, by the way, I have to bring in a point here because I talked about the word counting. There was a perfect tense counting that took place. Paul did the math at one point in time and he came and he saw the reality of a valueless life. And he came to this point where he said, listen, uh, I, I'm going to change. And he did. And, and, and out of this, it changes. The counting, the next two word counts that are there are present active verbs. It means that since that point in time, he kept counting all the time. Here's the question. Are you counting? Did you count? And are you counting? Are you counting? 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 Yesterday and today and tomorrow and this week? Counting? What's of value? What am I filling my life vault with? What's it going to be about? What do you choose? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that. It's not like crud. It's like there's something way better. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own, not having self-righteousness anymore that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Listen, the initial counting led to a life of counting. Paul was about himself, but he turned and became all about the person of Christ. I'm now counting. Is it about me or is it about Christ? And he says in here, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. It's of incomparable value. How much money do you have? That's nothing compared to the value of knowing the second person of the Trinity that created all things. what position you have, big deal. You can be able to be able to have a knowing relationship with Jesus Christ. That rocks. Knowing Jesus Christ is an absolute total gain. I just want to tell you folks, I love this passage because it just gets rid of this whole thing of crud. I'm a Christian and I can't do stuff. Are you kidding me? I'm a follower of Christ. I get to have a living, breathing, eternal relationship with the one who created it all. Nothing compares to that. None of my past successes, none of my past money, none of it compares to that. But we get tripped up. Ah, verse 2. We get tripped up into thinking that's awesomeness in itself. Look what I've done. Look at how beautiful I am. Look at how marvelous I am. Look at the position that I have. Look at whatever it is. It's just like the parties. Boring self-lie. Found in him. Hey, where are you? Right here in Christ. That's cool. The righteousness of Christ fully imputed on me, fully placed on you, actually having a relationship with God. I mean, a relationship with God. And the ultimate power of rising from the dead, I want to be in on that. And in fact, Paul drives this so deep that he knows that it's in the places of suffering where we become the closest to Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, I want to know Christ so bad that I'm willing to go through suffering like he did so that I can know him better. A dog. No, not a dog. Isn't that awesome? It's a whole other paradigm. Paul was all about a well-intentioned, works-driven life unto God. But then he counted, and he saw the bottom line. And he staked a new course. 
it's right at this point when I read a passage like verses 7 through 11 and I can get discouraged. Because I want to be that, but I'm not that. How about you? This is where the hope comes. Let's just wrap it up with the verses right after this. You see, because Paul was telling about who he was, Paul is telling now about who he, who he is about, who he wants, and now Paul actually says who he is. What he was just talking about was the goal that he's shooting for. I want to know Christ. I used to be about this, but now I want to be about Christ. That's the goal. Let's pick up verse 12 because this is what I love. Look at this. Look at the transparency and the honesty. Not that I have already obtained this. Oh, man. I'm serious. Does that give you hope? It's like, woo! Okay, buddy, now I'm your friend. Okay, because what you were just talking about was kind of like, I'm like, I want that. But there's a part of it where it's like, I'm just not that. And so he says, no, let's be real now. Let's talk about who I am now. Uh, Not that I've already obtained this, I've already been made perfect. Oh, man, good thing, because I'm not either. But I press on to make it my own. You see what he's saying here? That's what I want. I used to want this, but now that's what's driving me. That's what I want. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. By the way, who did the work there? Because Christ Jesus did the making me his own work. He did that. I can't pat myself on the back. He did that. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He just wants to make sure in case we didn't, we were so shocked from verse 12 that he says it again. But he says, but one thing I do, I love one things, but it's actually two things. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Do you see here? Verses seven through eleven was the goal. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Hey, you want to be mature in Christ? Think Philippians three way. That's the way. What's the way? Philippians three is the way. Like Paul is talking about in verses 7 through 11. One thing, forgetting the past, pressing on to the future. You may have a boatload of sin in your past. Doesn't this give you hope? Forget it. Now, the sin of our past points us to the need of a Savior. But at the time when we come to know Jesus Christ, it's been covered and taken care of as far as the east is from the west. By the way, God never forgets how could he. He's omniscient. But he sets it aside. And that's when the Bible talks about forgetting what lies behind. You will never forget sins you've done, some of the sins you've done in the past. You will never forget it. But you constantly are, I'm forgetting it. I'm purpose to forgetting it. I'm placing it back. It's been dealt with. It's over. Christ has covered it. It's done. And if you've been someone who's been dwelling on the past, get off the past, get looking ahead. 
Because here we see in the text, God wants eyes forward, not eyes in a rear. I am not saying sins from the past don't hurt. I am not saying sins from the past don't carry consequences. But I am saying this. If you've come to a place where you've received Jesus Christ as your savior, it's been dealt with and it's done as far as God is concerned. He's now wanting for you to be this direction. And by the way, if you've had sins done to you, horrific sins done to you, this is talking about that as well. God is big enough to cover it all. Forget about the past. Press ahead. Press ahead. Press ahead. Let's just take a moment here. Let's just kind of heads bow, eyes closed, just... You don't have to do that, but just let me just kind of ask you a couple questions here in just some quiet minute. Have you done the math? Let me just kind of say it this way. Have you, do you have a math story? Has there been a time in your life where you've sat down, opened up your life vault, and done the counting. I'm talking about that perfect tense counting that Paul talked about in his own life. Have you done the counting? If so, what's the analysis? Have you come to the place where you realize that before God, any good righteous things that we do, they're filthy rags, Isaiah 64. If that's the case, Paul is saying here, listen, for your safety, I just want to make sure that you're not fooling yourselves and thinking that you're still in a really good place with the Lord. It's not worth it. It's for your safety. Look at it. Have you come to the place like Paul where you see your need for a Savior? Who are you about really? Follower of Christ. Are you continuing to do the math? It's not just about a time in the past. Do you realize that when the Bible talks about how do I really know where my secured reality is with God? The Bible never talks about go back to the time to where you received Christ. The Bible always goes to the point of talking about where is your life at? Do you have fruit? I'm not talking about losing salvation. But sometimes for some, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're in a good place with God and yet we've never been at that place with the Lord. I just want to ask, believer, are you counting? What are you purposing your life to be about? Is there some stuff in your past that you have just been hanging on to? It's been hard. I'm not denying the hurt, but I am saying God's big enough. Just drop it, lay it at the cross, be done with it and press on towards the goal. (laughs) And I conclude with this. That's Paul's story. He's writing about it in a jail cell. (laughs) 
And in the beginning of the chapter, he says, presently, actively, continuously rejoice. Do you just hear the value? Paul is so convinced of the insurpassable value of knowing Christ that in a stinking, ugly, horrific jail cell, he can rejoice. That's what we're talking about here. Oh God, I pray, help us to be people who count. Help us to be people who do the math. We are a people that are just so busied in our activities and stuff and TV and radio and media and games. And Oh God, maybe for some, they just need to put it all down today and take some time and count the life vault reality in their life. And God, may we be people every day that are doing the math. Is this building for eternity? Is this? Is this? Is this about it? What would honor Christ? Oh God, I want to know you. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ. Brothers, I haven't already attained that yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and pressing towards what's ahead, God, may that be our math story. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray.